there will be pain on, in the markets, there will be blood in the streets, and then the Fed will step in and have absolutely no choice but to flip on the money printer and absolutely flood the market with capital to ensure that it doesn't collapse. Because we, we have such a massive amount of debt at the Treasury that if the markets collapse, so does the Treasury. You can't have the markets completely collapse. They can go down 10, 20, 30%, but they cannot collapse. And they have, yeah. to stay, they have to stay liquid. The Treasury market must stay liquid. And that's what it all comes down to. For the 4th of July, Blockware is celebrating freedom by giving away a free Bitcoin mining rig. Sign up for the Blockware Marketplace before July 4th to enter for a chance to win a free S19 Pro. This machine is online right now at Blockware's site in Eastern Kentucky, and it is ready to have the hash power directed to you in minutes. Now this model is currently trading for roughly $1,600 on the Blockware Marketplace. Should you win the giveaway, you can list your machine for sale at any price you choose, or you can let it hash and receive Bitcoin mining rewards every single day. This is a limited time giveaway, so sign up now and complete the onboarding process at marketplace.blockwaresolutions.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on James Lavis. James, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, Joe. I'm happy to be here. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's jump right into it. Um, we saw you know, BlackRock, their, their, their Bitcoin ETF or their Bitcoin trust, uh, they're, you know, scheduled or they're supposed to be filing that. What are your thoughts on that generally? Yeah, immediately. Uh, you know, as soon as I saw that there was a lot of buzz on Twitter and, and in our circles and some back and forth about, uh, whether it's good or bad, you know, BlackRock, the big, big, bad behemoth of institution coming into the space. Um, but in general, Joe, I, I think it's a, a huge positive. And there are a number of reasons for that. Number one, structurally, it is a trust, but functionally, it acts like a T ETF. So even though, uh, and I have not dug into it uh, deeply enough to know exactly what the nuances are. However, from what I can tell and what I've read through, it looks like it acts like an ETF in that uh, the difference is it doesn't continuously update the underlying value of what it is supposedly uh, presenting and, 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 uh, and offering investors on the exchange. So um, it let's back up for your listeners. An ETF is an exchange traded fund. And what it does is it mimics whatever it, it's trying to show. So for instance, if you want to buy uh, a share of the S&P, well, you can't really do that. The S&P 500 has 500 stocks in it, unless you're doing fractional shares and you're calculating it out and you're buying a fraction share of everything it, with your $100, it, you, it's, it's difficult to do that and keep it weighted properly. The weightings change, you know, from the S&P stocks go in and out of the S&P 500. So it's difficult to do that. And so what you do is you buy the spiders, the SPYs. And so in doing that, you get a little bit of every single company because what you sh you buy the spider on the exchange that puts money into that uh, into that exchange. And then at the end of the day, the 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 ones who are running that ETF will reconcile the cash in and out and make sure that they have enough shares 
to show that that underlying value of that of that ETF matches what it, it should for the uh, the ownership of those of those stocks, right? So, and it's a similar way with this with the Bitcoin ETF. The problem we've had up to now, Joe, is that we have a bunch of futures ETFs, and they're just paper settled, meaning that you're pretty much making a bet on the futures ETF or the futures Bitcoin uh, price, and then it's cash settled when when you buy and sell it, right? So there's no underlying uh, asset that is attached to that paper, that future. Where with this, even though it's not an ETF, it's a trust, it'll act like an ETF in that the, um, the BlackRock will buy and sell shares um, or coins, Bitcoins, in order to match that in, in baskets at the end of every single day. So in functionally, it will be like an ETF. And so, yeah, it can, people will be able to borrow it, I, I imagine, and, and sell it short, just like you can with the QQQs or the spiders. But net-net, it's not like paper where you can sit on top of it and just create as much paper as you want in the, in the futures ETF and, uh, and never have to actually deal with the underlying. So, but what's most important about this, this is getting to be a long answer for this first question. What's most important about it, though, is that it gives it validates Bitcoin as as a an independent asset allocation for institutions. It gives them an easy on ramp, right? So it's this is going to be like a highway for a super highway for for the institutions and small institutions that don't have the capability or the wherewithal or they don't want to take the risk of of keeping custody of those coins themselves, they will trust BlackRock to do it for them. And so what's important about that is that it gets over this, this risk hurdle for them. So if you think about registered investment advisors who have hundreds of clients, some of them thousands, then they don't, they don't want to have to deal with the, the custody of all those coins and getting over the hurdle of explaining to each of their investors what they're doing, this just becomes a, a verified and validated asset class that they can put their investors in now. And it makes it very easy. So the on-ramp of billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, can come into this space through BlackRock through that alone. And, and that's um, and it's, a, it's an important development. Um, and then separately, whether or not it gets approved is a different question. I personally think that you know BlackRock is not going to go do this um, just offhand. They're, they're, they're going to have made their checks, determined what the most likely uh, structure would be to get approved by the SEC, probably had initial conversations with them to understand what their reservations were from prior ETFs that have been uh, denied approval for spot uh, ETF. And now I think that uh, with BlackRock's record, I think they've filed for 575 ETFs and have gotten approved on 574 of them. I think it's a pretty high likelihood that this does eventually get approved by the SEC and it'd be a big deal. I think it's going to be, it's going to bring a lot of capital into the space, into Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it definitely seems like the odds are higher than it's ever been before for a product like this. Can you also maybe compare it to GBTC? I feel like a lot of people 
don't fully understand like how this product works compared to maybe GT GBTC, like the basics. I, I've yeah. had people ask me like, wait, why did GBTC go down today when Bitcoin went up, you know? And like, yeah. can you explain that to, to people? Yeah, the problem with GPTC has always been that it's got a trust structure, but it 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 was uh, it was created in tranches, uh, and so these 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 shares of, of of GBTC were issued, and the underlying investors are locked up in them, so they can sell in the market, but they're selling at a discount to what the actual price of Bitcoin is because whoever buys that is locked up. And they can't, you can't, you, you can't turn that in for a share of, of Bitcoin, you know, or, you know, the, uh, the Satoshis that the amount that you would have bought through that trust. The difference here is they're settling that trust on exchange, uh, every night with baskets. And so you're not locked up in the same way. So it shouldn't have, it, it will, it will, Joe, have some discrepancies and there will be some arbitrage that people will play throughout the day, but it won't be like this 20, 30, 40% discount to the, to the price. It might be a few percent on major, very volatile moves, but those will be short lived and they'll close up quickly. So that's my, that's how I would see it and what I would expect. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely seems like this would be a much better product than GBTC and and GBTC. I think at its peak was like a fifty billion dollar trust. I mean, or at least that's what it was trading at. So maybe yeah. this could be, like you said, like a hundred billion dollar. We'll see. I would expect it. I, I would expect nothing, nothing less. To be truthful, you know, it, this is going to be a big deal in, in my mind. And then with Fidelity and Schwab, uh, you know, uh, and then and getting together and, and this uh, creating exchange. And uh, I mean, this is a, this is also a very big deal. Another point of validation and an entry point for people to understand. It gives it, you know, with all of the negativity around FTX and Coinbase, this will give people much more comfort. You know, people who are out there that I talk to every day. I was just, uh, I was just on a camping trip with a with a bunch of of U.S. Uh, military vets and. Uh, you know, this last weekend and some of them really, they understood. There were a few that really understood what was going on, but a few of them um, were just, they were perplexed by the, all of the misinformation that's out there and the conflicting information. And, uh, and so in, and, you know, their first question was, well, even if I want to buy it, where can I buy it? Because none of these exchanges are trustworthy. So, if you have an exchange that's built by Schwab and, you know, or Fidelity or whatever it ends up being, that that will give instant validation to this, you know, and so it's it's a really big deal. And that could be uh, I was just talking to Greg Foss just a few minutes ago, and, you know, he thinks it could be even bigger deal than than a straight ETF. And he might be right. I mean, this is a really big, big deal. Um, but, you know. Uh, Bitcoin price is up quite a bit, and that's because of this. Let's make no mistake about it. It's not because people are expecting the Fed to pivot today or, you know, um, I mean, clearly with the, the Fed futures are pricing in a 70% or more uh, likelihood of a rate increase this next month. So that's not it. It's this. And if we weren't in such a uh, an uncertain environment economically right now, I think Bitcoin would be up way more, and uh, you know, it's just this is this is something that uh, that I think is a, it's a it's a huge positive in the in the development for Bitcoin adoption by uh, across the board by people and understanding it. 
Yeah, I want to start diving into like some more of your your macro thoughts, but real quick, I it seems like regulators and like I guess Wall Street generally have kind of like pushed away from crypto and they're like starting to like really embrace Bitcoin. Like it seems like, you know, the SEC attacking Coinbase and Binance kind of around the same time and then all of a sudden like BlackRock, Fidelity and all these companies are trying to get into Bitcoin. Like it seems a little weird. Do you think that's a a trend that's like taking place or do you think it's just coincidence that this is all happening at once? I mean, let's, let's face it. These, I think they've been, they've been doing, look, these companies don't do anything quickly, right? They're behemoths and it takes, there's a ton of red tape. I've talked about this from the day I got into the space um, years ago about how the problem with entering the space is that there's so much red tape. Right. I mean, just to get approvals to if you're a, if you're a portfolio manager and you want to buy Bitcoin and you're at a place like like BlackRock or Fidelity or you're at State, State Street or CalPERS, like these huge, huge pension funds, you know, um, or these huge money managers, you have to go through uh, multiple levels of approvals to get there as a portfolio manager. You first, you have an analyst that briefs you on it. Then you dig in, you find, you get through it, you do your research, you do your, you know, hundred hours of research and you get through it to the point where you feel comfortable with buying it. Well, then you've, you've got to get the buy-in from your, your chief investment officer. And then once you get them to approve and and them to agree that, yeah, this can be an asset allocation in your portfolio, well, there are some nuances to Bitcoin that you have to get over, which are like, you know, how do you custody it? Who's going to trade it? Uh, you know, where where are you settling it? What exchange are you doing it on? Um, and these are things that that legally you have to get through. Uh, are you holding them yourself in cold storage? Are you you know you you do you have a custody solution? Can you use your own prime broker? Do you have to get a different prime broker? And then you have to go through all of those operational details and get approval from your general counsel. And the general counsel will tell you whether or not, it, you know, legally it's too big of a risk for the firm. To, there's just so many hoops. Together, and that takes months, months and months. It doesn't take weeks. So imagine if you want to do something like you're BlackRock and you want to create an ETF. And that's not a portfolio manager coming in or, uh, you know, uh, some sort of asset allocator coming in and saying, hey, I think we should do this. We should create this product. A product manager saying we should create this product and it gets approved that week. That that takes a long time. So think about how long they've been looking at this. Well, then you think about all of the damage that has been done in this space over this past year between FTX and Celsius and all of the, the problems we've seen and the nefarious activity, the fraud, well, that's given them pause and made them step back. Now the regulators are swooping in and that gives them a little bit of surety. Bitcoin's been held out from this pretty much completely uh, on the regulator front. And so now they're saying, okay, this is an opportunity and now we should push forward. And they've all had their kind of their ducks lined up and now they're all coming forward because we're getting some clarity. We're going to get regulation around this. Uh, it's clear the regulators are going after certain uh, protocols, but not Bitcoin. And so I think it gives them a, quite a bit of certainty and uh, and they feel like the risk has been mitigated to the point where now this is, now they should take advantage of this opportunity now. So, yeah, it's a pretty awesome time to be in the Bitcoin space and hopefully we'll continue to see like 
interesting developments like that. I do want to dive into to macro because I know you're an awesome macro thinker. We had like the like the banking crisis earlier this year with Silicon Valley Bank and, and a few others. Do you think that's over now or will we see a resurgence of the banking crisis? Yeah, no, I don't think it's over. Uh, in, in fact, you heard Powell say it today that there's some there there, even though the banks are well capitalized in, in you know, both Powell and Yellen's uh, statements. The problem is that there's still some some issues on the horizon that have to do with interest rate risk and with uh, and with what's that what that has done to the various markets and the kind of specific risks that that uh, that you know creates for banks and and especially for regional banks and so and I just wrote a thread about this today. There's uh, there's a problem in the in the commercial real estate market. You know, and the issue is that, you know, we, we had this, you remember back in 2020, obviously the work from home thing took off. Nobody worked from home before that, right? There was a great migration to the cities. And so there were all these reports about how, you know, cities were actually, they, they lowered people's carbon footprint because you're in smaller spaces, you're moving shorter distances. And so it's like everybody's moving into the cities and into the urban areas. And these, you know, the, the commercial real estate just had a, a massive boom after 2008. And so, uh, then you have this lockdown, right? And so people are at home. They set their whole, you know, they're, they're, they have a whole setup. Now I had a setup because I'm, I'm an investor and I, and I want to be able to always see the market, wake up in the morning, see what's going on. Where That wasn't typical for, you know, your average person. They would check their email and they would start doing the work when they got to the office. But then they had to set up a whole office at home. Well, it got to be easy to say, well, I can work from home. It obviously worked fine. You know, for a lot of industries, it was very easy for people to say, well, we will we'll cut back our staff. You know, we, we've had these conversations. It's, it's clear that 100 percent workforce in the office is kind of dead. That's not going to that 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 ship has sailed. So now you have these uh, offices, especially in the urban centers that have a lot of traffic and it's difficult to get to their uh, their their occupancy is way down. Right. So um, and so the issue is for, for everybody to really understand, what does that really mean? OK, so the occupancy is down. Well, that means that the businesses are, are not re-signing leases or they're signing leases for smaller footprints. They don't need quite as much space because they don't have as many people in the office, which means that the landlord that owns the building is generating less revenue. OK, at the same time as rates have been going straight up. Right. So Powell he he jacked up rates by over 5% in in less than a year so now what happens to real estate prices when when the cost of capital goes up well real estate price, real estate prices have to come down you know in order to in order to offset that uh, especially if you have a situation where the revenues from those office buildings is lower right so the cap rates are out of alignment so now you've got the occupancy rates are down. Landlords are making less money. Uh, and so at the same time, rates are up and you've got a whole bunch of these leases that are on variable interest rates, right? Or they're coming due, or I'm sorry, not the leases, the mortgages on these properties that are on, they're either variable and they've been going up or 
they're 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 maturing and so they have to be refinanced in the next there's like one point over two and a half trillion dollars of of commercial real estate has to be uh has to be refinanced in this next i want to say it's uh 42 months i think is what i saw and so um you know the problem is that there's there's two point almost two point six trillion dollars of commercial real estate loans that are coming due. Well, here's the problem, and it gets to your question, Joe, is that $1.4 trillion of that is with banks. It's with, and most of those are with regional banks. And so what's happening is, and we're seeing it, you know, $3 trillion of, of or I'm sorry, $3 billion of, of real estate was walked away from the last couple of weeks. What happens is the landlords are just handing in their keys. They're non-recourse loans. So they hand in their keys. They walk away, they take a small loss and they're like, okay, we don't, you know, I'm not going to uh, take any more of a loss on this building. Now it gets put on the bank sheet. Now the banks have this asset that's now impaired, that's sitting on their sheet and they're not making revenue off of that loan. The loan is, is defaulted. So what happens? Well, that's now it's stuck in the bank's uh, balance sheet and they've got to turn around and sell it or do something with it. And so that's uh it's a major issue that that is going to creep up it's right ahead of us um do i think it's going to happen next month no but i think we're going to see more and more of these leases walked away from uh mortgages just um defaulting because of the landlords and owners just walking away from them non-recourse like i said there's no legal uh there's no legal recourse for the banks to come after them and so the banks are stuck with the they're stuck with the bill. They're holding the bag, and it's going to cause problems. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. I mean, I would definitely not want to be holding a commercial real estate building right now. That would be a little stressful. <laughs> well, you know, and and here's the funny thing is that some 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 buildings are doing better than others, right, Joe? So you know, you if you look at the office space is down, you know, the change in property value because of what we're talking about, because of the higher interest rates, because of the, uh, you know, occup occupancy rates down, the, you know, the change in value of office real estate is down about, it's down about five or 6%, right? Right. So in the last, in the last year, and that's not going into this year. These are figures from last year. And uh, I think, uh, I think Trep put it at, about a half a billion dollars worth of, uh, I sorry, half a trillion dollars worth of of impairment that's on the horizon for these, right? So, on the other side, though, industrial hotels are doing pretty well. You know, they're up five to ten percent, maybe more. And so, it really depends. It's specific to what you own, which is why I'm saying that this commercial real estate thing. It's not going to be like the housing crisis. It's not all the way across the board. It's not going to take take down commercial real estate everywhere. But the problem is that the holdings of these office buildings are concentrated in regional banks. And that's the issue. And so at some point, we're going to see a regional bank pop up with a major problem because a landlord walked away and just handed in the keys. And that's where I'm, I'm concerned. And then your concern is, well, does the Fed protect them? Does the Treasury come in and help like they did in uh, Silicon Valley or they let them die? And if they let them die, is there going to be contagion from that? Are they, is that going to pull a string where other banks are going to get uh, hurt from it? That's, the, that's, the, that's a tough question. And that's the one I'm watching for. Yeah. 
do you have any insight on like which way that might go? I mean, I feel like the precedent for Silicon Valley Bank might be to bail them out, but if it's such a small bank, maybe they will just let it go down. I, my pre- I would say that there's no way that the Fed will allow contagion if they see it. If they see that there's a risk of, of uh, systemic risk, they will come in. He said it numerous times. You know, we we watch for systemic risk. We watch for that. We don't see systemic risk. We're watching for that. And if they see it, of course, they're going to come in. They're going to come up with some sort of, you know, new uh, vehicle that they're they're going to, you know, come up with some way to shore up the bank's balance sheets or give them uh, some sort of lifeline to enable them to to survive and to ensure that it doesn't take down more banks. Yeah, makes sense. And we've all seen we've all seen that that meme of the one domino with the big domino <laughs> stacked up, you know, that just that one domino can topple the big one at the end. And the big one at the end is the treasury. And they all know it. So they've got to be careful. Yeah, I like it. I know you you kind of did write a, an interesting Twitter thread relating to the debt ceiling being resolved a little ways back and then how the treasury will need to refill its accounts which could break markets. Can you kind of explain like what's going on there with the treasury? Hey everyone, this week I want to talk about stamp seed. This is very cool metal plate where you can literally stamp your Bitcoin seed phrase with this hammer that they sell you into this metal plate. This is a must have for all Bitcoin holders. If you have taken self custody of your Bitcoin, you wanna make sure you've recorded your seed phrase on something that is fireproof, waterproof, and time resistant. This is a great product for Bitcoiners who have taken self custody and want that extra level of security and resiliency to store their Bitcoin. So if you are interested in this product, definitely check out stampseed.com. Use code BLOCKWARE15 for 15% off the entire website. This expires at the end of May. So go to stampseed.com today. Yeah. So, I mean, the Treasury General Account, the TGA, is like the, it's like the checking account for the U.S. Treasury, right? And so um, we actually tripped the, the debt ceiling back in January, okay? And so when we did that, you heard Yellen come out and say, we're going to use some extraordinary measures in order to, to ensure that the, the Treasury doesn't default. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, the problem is simply the U.S. government, the Treasury, operates in a deficit. It's not the Treasury's fault. It's Congress's fault. Okay, so we spend more than we take in. Well, if you think about a business, right, and I've written a lot about the debt, uh, the debt spiral of, of the United States, and there are some other, uh, many other countries that are in the same position. And the problem is we operate in a perpetual deficit. And the issue there is that we don't, the, the, the United States does not generate enough productivity and tax that productivity to pay for all the programs that it spends money on. And in reality, you know, you and I are producing, like we're producing right now. This is going to generate income for whoever you are putting this up for, whether it's YouTube or anywhere else you put these uh, podcasts up, Twitter, this will generate revenue for them. We're doing that. And then they'll get taxed on that revenue. And then that tax pays for the expenses, right? So that's all they do. They, they tax and spend and spend and spend 
and spend. So, okay, so what, what that means is that since we operate a perpetual deficit, every single year we have a shortfall. And so we have to issue treasuries. We have to borrow money from the people of the world in order to make up that shortfall, to have enough money to pay for all those programs and to pay for the treasuries that are maturing, right? Because when a treasury matures, when a U.S. treasury matures, well, we don't have enough money to pay for that from our GDP, from our, our tax base, right? So what do we do? We issue more treasuries. Okay. So when you hit up that debt ceiling, now, uh-oh, we can't issue any more treasuries. What do we do? Well, the first thing that we did was we borrowed. We, we, we you know, you've heard the uh, the expression, uh, you know, steal from Peter to pay Paul. And so that's basically what the treasurer was doing, using internal programs where they weren't paying for retirement funds of postal workers and military vets. And they were using that money for other programs that they had to pay. They couldn't just hold them off. And so they were able to limp along until the beginning of this month, where we were right up against that ceiling. We depleted the checking account. And the TGA was down to like 20-something billion dollars which would be like you having $50 in your bank account and you owe $31.7, you know, $31,700 on credit card bills. That's kind of what that, that, that's the way the math works out. Okay. So it's a problem, right? You would have like 20 bucks in your bank account. So, uh, so now the treasury is, they, they're rescued by Congress. They say, okay, we're just going to, we're, we're going to say we're going to cap the spending, but there will be no debt limit, right? So, okay, the Treasury can go out and start issuing debt again. Well, that's great. But remember, the Treasury usually, TGA usually has about 500 to $600 billion in it. Now it's got $20 billion or $30 billion, or a number of weeks ago it did. They're starting to fill it back up. Okay, you've got a few things. You stole from Peter to pay Paul. You've got to pay that money back, right? The programs that you put on hold. Uh, you've got to refill the treasury account. So you're talking about five, $600 billion right there, right? And, uh, and then you've got all of these treasuries that are maturing this year, right? So you've got the treasuries that are maturing, not just this year, this month, you've got like 225 or $250 billion of treasuries that are maturing this month. You've got to issue more treasuries to pay for those because you don't have money in your account to pay for those. So you've got to borrow to pay off, right? And so now you're looking at over a trillion dollars that you've got to issue in debt in like four to six weeks. So that's a lot. So what is that doing? Well, some there's some there's some challenges for the treasury. One of the challenges is we, we've seen that our major buyers of treasuries internationally, especially the sovereigns, have backed off. You know, China and Japan have backed off quite a bit. They're not buying treasuries like they were before. And you can see it on the marginal buyers. Uh, there's a chart that I had in that post that showed just how little uh, some of these uh, these countries are, are buying now, right? So that's number one. Um, then number two, so what do you, you, you have to issue a trillion dollars worth of debt. Well, so who else is going to buy it? Well, you've got your, we've talked about the re reverse repo market. There's a, there's this cash hoard that's in this reverse repo market. What is that? Well, when, after 2020, 
when all this money was printed and the and all these you know the, with the Cantillon effect, these banks are sitting on the big banks are sitting on trillions of dollars. There's over two trillion dollars that they don't really know what to do with. They can't buy U.S. Treasuries with them because they're capped out on on leverage limits, right? So they can't buy Treasuries with them. Um, and you've got money market uh, accounts they've got to they got to, they have to keep up with. So they put it in these these vehicles that are offered by the Fed. It's called the reverse repo vehicle. And so you've got over two trillion dollars just sitting there, right? And it's making pretty good interest. Okay, so you've got that, that they can tap into. But remember, I just said these the banks have a limit to the number of treasuries they can own, right? The the, the ratio on their balance sheet that they can own. So in order to do that the treasury would have to be issuing shorter term debt, right? They'd have to be issuing T-bills, something that's not a 30-year bond. You know, they would have to be issuing much shorter paper in order to pull money out of that reverse repo market. We've seen them do it. They're, they've been doing it the last few weeks, and that's what they, that's a good game plan because it's not tightening, Right. Because that money is just kind of sitting idle already. It's just sitting there. So they're not really taking it out from reserves that these, these banks are using to shore up their balance sheet. That's just reverse repo money. It's just sitting there. It's ex ex excess cash. So that's one thing they can do. Um, and that's, and that's, a, that's a pretty good playbook, right? Um, but, you know, they, you're talking about the, the treasury, the, like, Okay, so you've got $1 trillion they need. That would be half of the reverse repo money. So they're not going to take all of it out of there. Where else can they dip into? Well, the banks have, they have like $3.3 trillion worth of reserves, right, that they've, they've got on their books. All right, so if they were pulling money from reserves, then again, that would be, that would be tightening because those reserves would then not be available for liquidity in the markets, right? So that would be pulling capital out of those reserves and basically parking it at the treasury, right? So, um, but to, to, to do that, again, they've got the liquidity coverage ratios that they have to deal with, right? And so there's a, there's a question there. There's only so much that can go into that. And then on top of it, the treasury has been talking about the fact that they've got a, re they, they're trying to sell some of those five trillion dollars worth of of bonds and and uh, the the commercial paper that the the, uh, the CMB paper that they um, had bought, so the mortgage backed securities, so they're trying to sell ninety five billion dollars of those every month. So that's another you know they they need more liquidity there. So. I don't know where it comes from, Joe, but they're 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 treading lightly. It looked like bond auctions are doing okay still. Uh, there is enough capital out there to be soaking it up right now. I don't see an issue yet, but it's a lot of capital, and it's only going to get worse because, as we've seen, tax receipts are going down. We're we we are headlong heading into a recession, and Powell is all but admitted that's where he wants us to be because he needs to get inflation down, needs to get inflation down. So um, when we have a recession, tax receipts are going to go even lower. The deficit's going to grow and it's going to get even worse because on top of that trillion dollars we're talking about today, there's another over trillion dollars that the Fed needs, that the Treasury needs to, to raise in the next six months 
because of the deficits. And that's a minimum, right? We're already running over a trillion dollar uh, deficit run rate in the first half of 2023. And it's it appears to be getting worse on the back end. So how much do they need? 1.5 trillion, you know, 1.2 trillion. It's a it's a lot of treasuries. And the issue that 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 really points to is that the treasury is beginning to crowd out marginal balance sheets, right? So, you know, you've got these balance sheets that are on uh, public companies who are making less money now, who don't have the same amount of cash or they're starting to dip into cash for, um, you know, uh, expenses that they that they were using for just savings before in their treasury. And so uh, now the Fed needs or the treasury needs more money. And so though some of those balance sheets are being crowded out by both a, the tightening in the economy, the tightening of their margins and, and their profits and just the sheer load of debt that's being issued into the market. And I don't know who buys it all. We'll see. Yeah. It's like, that's really like fascinating. Luke, like Luke Roman says, let's watch. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Cause I feel like also throughout all of 2022, like it was such a tough time that it makes sense for a lot of people to like be taking, like going risk off, like buying cash, buying T bills. And then it's like, if the flip, switches and like all of a sudden we're off to the races and everything's running again and they're trying to issue a bunch of t-bills it's like then who would really be buying and right. i don't know <laughs> yeah and really what i'm more what i'm more worried about joe is uh i'm i i do believe we're gonna hit a recession here i do i, I just believe we're gonna do it we're gonna hit a recession uh the fed's gonna hold rates longer than they higher for longer than they should they will make a policy error um if they raise them again in July, I think that's a policy error. We'll see. We'll see what the data looks like. But remember, they're looking in the rearview mirror as they're driving headlong toward a cliff, right? So that's the issue here. And so um, the, all of these, all of these tightening measures that they have, raising rates, Q, QT, selling bonds into the market, selling a, a trillion dollars of treasuries, that's all tightening. You've seen you've seen the lending uh, practices tighten up on on banks, so there's there's just less liquidity out there. There's less access to capital. The capital costs more. This is this all points toward we're going to go into a recession, and so when that happens, the question is, do we have some sort of credit event before that? And that's what concerns me about all of this tightening that is going to occur with the additional treasuries that the treasury has to issue and with, uh, you know, the tightening around the markets. And so like we're talking about with the, with the commercial real estate, um, does that, does that trigger some sort of credit event and where a bank fails? And if that bank fails, the counterparty risk of another bank fails Right. The counterparty, that counterparty fails, which is counterparty risk, causes this bank to fail, which may even be bigger. And then this bank fails, you know, and that's contagion. That's the that's the dangers that we hit some spot here where we have some sort of credit event where you have, uh, you know, a, some sort of trigger that sets off a chain of events that that causes what we're talking about is systemic risk. And so. And if that happens, well, there will be pain 
on in the markets. There will be blood in the streets. And then the Fed will step in and have absolutely no choice but to flip on the money printer and absolutely flood the market with capital to ensure that it doesn't collapse. Because we, we have such a massive amount of debt at the Treasury that if the markets collapse, so does the Treasury. You can't have the markets completely collapse. They can go down 10, 20, 30%, but they cannot collapse. And they have yeah. to stay, they have to stay liquid. The treasury market must stay liquid. And that's what it all comes down to. Crazy. I guess how should investors or individuals like position themselves like going into this? And like, could you argue that like, you know, the Silicon Bank bank crisis was that kind of I guess the Fed didn't completely rush in with all the liquidity quite yet. So they could it could be in the future, but if it does happen in the future and we do have some sort of like initial phase of a credit collapse, what's the, how should investors be positioning mm -hmm. themselves? Well, that's a good question. And so, and I get that a lot. Um, the first question, Silicon Valley. Yeah. That, that absolutely could have, uh, could have triggered a number of other, it, it could have triggered some, some, uh, counterparty failures. And, uh, and remember, remember who the investors were in that, who, who the depositors were in that bank. They're, they're these startups uh, to um, to huge tech companies, a lot of tech companies, right? So, um, and uh, if I remember correctly, Roku had three hundred million dollars deposited there. That would that I mean it wouldn't have impaired them, but that would have been painful for that for that company. Okay, so and then you've got a lot of private equity and venture capital firms that had a ton of capital tied up there and deposited at that bank. So. It could have been a major triggering triggering uh, event. So um, the second question, how do you, well, everybody, how do you position yourself? First, I have to say everybody's different, okay? You're different age, different income, different liquidity, di different liquidity needs, um, and then different appetite for risk and uh, an ability to handle the risk, right? So everybody is different, but I can tell you what I've been doing if that helps. Uh, I'm a little bit older than you by about three or 30 years. And so, um, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I'm a little bit more cautious than, than somebody who's in their 20s. Uh, even then, what I've been doing is I've, I've had a lot of, a, a large percentage of my uh, personal account is held in cash. Uh, short-term treasuries that have high interest rate that uh, that are just rolling off, and because I don't believe that the Fed is going to or the the Treasury is going to hard default. I talked about a lot on, on some of my newsletters, um, and uh, and I, I I feel like that that's not um, that's not a danger near term, long term maybe, but not near term. So that's first. I've also been buying things like gold, silver, and Bitcoin opportunistically as they've come in. Uh, and so Bitcoin's been running because of what we talked about earlier today. But when that when when that does uh, take legs down, I've been buying opportunistically. Why? Not because I believe that they're going to do well if and when the market has a downturn. I think that they'll all get hit. But I think they'll do extremely well in the event that the Fed does turn pivot and turn on the QE again, which I think they're going to eventually be forced to do. 
And so with the expansion of the money supply, those assets, the hard monies will do very well. I think that, you know, you'll see that you, they'll have a beta, like gold will, will do very well. Silver should do even better. And Bitcoin will do way better than both of those is my, is that's my feeling. And that's what, that's what I believe, uh, that I have strong conviction in that. Uh, but importantly, the cash that I do hold is fully FDIC insured with a GSIB uh, or similar. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm confident there. And uh, yeah, I'm just watching for opportunity. And as it comes in, I'm the, you can't time anything perfectly. I've been doing this way too long to know that you just can't time it perfectly. So you, you just buy it as it comes in. And when there's blood on the streets, you're supposed to be buying it, even if it's your own blood. That's what it is. So yeah, I like it. Yeah, I like kind of like a, a barbell strategy of like T bills and Bitcoin. That's kind of what I've been doing. <laughs> a lot more Bitcoin than T bills, but I feel you're like a little bit younger than me. That's okay, you know. Yeah, but I have I I have a, a significant allocation to it myself. So you know, I like it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, one last question, then we can probably uh, wrap it up. So I guess like timing wise on like when we might see a, a fed pivot i know like you said timing is really impossible but if you had to guess when might that be i mean is it going to be six months from now is it going to be two years from now is it going to be five years from now yeah when, when do you think it could be yeah it's a good question i think uh well first of all uh i do believe that the market is overestimating the likelihood of a, a rate raise in july now that said uh, the Fed has demonstrated the ability to get things extraordinarily wrong. So, and they've made some massive policy policy errors in the past, including uh, allowing this expansion of the money supply to get so out of control in 2020. So that's number one. Um, so I would put it more at 50-50 or less in, in my opinion. But let's see what the numbers come out. Because what the Fed is going to need is firepower. They're going to need air cover from the CPI and PCE numbers. They're going to need that in order to uh, justify saying that we're above the neutral rate. Meaning that if you're at the neutral rate, it's not it's not tightening, it's not loosening. It's it, you know it's kind of like uh, it's Goldilocks and the three bears. You know, not too warm, not too cold. It's just right. Like. That means that it does not add to expansion of the of the economy and it's not tightening it, right? So um, that's number one. I believe that they need some air cover and if they get it, they're just going to hold it there and say, look, we're above the neutral rate. We're seeing tightening. The numbers are coming down. We're going to be patient. We're going to see what happens for the next meeting. And they're going to hold the market off from jumping the gun and saying, oh, they pivoted, right? But then you have the issues that we're talking about with commercial real estate. You're talking about very, you know, and the the cost of capital has gone up multiples of what it was just a year and a half ago. Okay. So uh, companies are starting to feel that pinch, which means that their margins are coming in, which means that their profits are coming in, which means that the multiples that they're trading at are going up in the market for the same amount of earnings that they're that they're they're getting, right? So because their earnings are going down, that means multiples will have to come down. And then all feeds on itself. And uh and eventually 
like I've showed a, a chart, I think I showed it again today, is look, don't, every time I hear somebody say, oh, unemployment is very low, you know, we're still not in a recession. Unemployment does not really spike until we're already in a recession. So that is not a good indicator. And I do believe the Fed is using that as coverage to keep raising rates and saying, oh, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. We're still at full unemployment because it's one of their mandates. But we're going to turn around and that unemployment's going to hit fast. Now, all that said, Joe, this has been the most difficult investing environment I've seen in my career, right? And so you've got a lot of different factors going on here. You've got the expectation of the Fed pivoting with all that money supply coming in. You've got the danger of, of the the this massive uh, debt spiral that the the U.S. has already entered. We're at the beginning of it, but we're enter we've entered it. Uh, all the leverage in the system. You've got the the commercial real estate issue, but then the other side, you've got this introduction of of AI and how you know incredibly uh, um, efficient it, it can make everything and a lot of things. And so that could add to the bottom line of companies because you'll have the, the ability to generate output and productivity that you didn't have before with the same workforce or less. So it's a really weird dynamic, right? So companies may be more profitable, but workers could be laid off. So how is that going to work, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing. So, but all that said, I still believe that we're going to see a downturn in the economy. To answer your question directly, I do think we're going to see a downturn in the economy by the fourth quarter, first quarter, fourth quarter this year, first quarter next year. It's just, you know, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we had some sort of credit event before that. So I'm wow. not. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, this was an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed uh, listening to a lot of your thoughts here. James, uh, do you have any final thoughts and, and a place to maybe send the audience to as, as well? Yeah, no. Uh, so a few things uh, for some of your the people listening. Uh, first of all, they know that I, I have this newsletter. It's called The Informationist. And all the things that we talked about today, I've explained uh, in great detail uh, in this newsletter that I started last year. And it's it takes all these concepts and it makes it super simple for people to understand comes out every week. There's a free version of it that I give a lot of newsletters that are free out there that that are talking about all this stuff. So I, I encourage anybody who's interested in it. Uh, it's gotten great feedback and uh, go check it out. It's free. Um, so um, and then for some other of your listeners, uh, they may know that uh, I'd started a, a hedge fund with with some of the people you've had on the show before. Uh, it's called the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. It is for uh, it is for accredited investors. That's not my choice. It's SEC law, um, but uh, you know if uh, it and it's it's taking advantage of some of the opportunities in the markets that we talked about and watching for these and waiting for this to happen. It's a Bitcoin only uh, ecosystem focused public and private fund. Uh, so if anybody's interested in that, you can uh, check it out. It's bitcoinopportunity.fund and my newsletter you can just go to the, my profile on twitter and or just go to jameslavish.com it's right there 
But uh, awesome talking to you, Joe. I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's always fun. And uh, I always want to catch up with you more at, at the conferences, but we're both running all over the place and we don't get a chance to just sit down. So I think next time we have to sit down and just have coffee or something. Yes, let's do it. I'm down. Yeah, the conferences are fun. It's a lot of talking to people, but... Yeah, you're constantly busy and constantly running around. But thanks again, James. This was awesome. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. See you next time. Yeah.